Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. This is a recording of our weekly Exploring the Parsha class with Rabbi Rebecca Schatz and Rabbi Matt Shapiro. Shabbat Shalom! We're going to look at Parashat Mishpatim. Um, Rabbi Shapiro is about to call you Klickfeld, and I were thinking that maybe we would um, we would try to do Kushiot a little bit differently this week. We were we were really glad that people had so many comments last week, but we felt like Kushiot kind of just turned into lots of comments, <laughs> um, which is awesome, and we're glad to have you share those comments. But we want to also be able to share some of the commentaries for you to then comment on. Um, so I think what we'll do is we'll go through the verses and then we will like take Kushiot, but very quickly without responses from Rabbi Shapiro or I. And then we'll go into the text and have um, more of the conversation happen after we've shared a few other pieces of text. Just so you're getting more Torah than um, than we were able to get through last week. Though it was a very fruitful conversation. Um, so I just want to give you that that format up front. And oh, I, I thought will... we were going even crazier. What? I thought we were, I thought we were going totally kushialist. Oh, okay. We don't have to, if it, I don't want to go too, I don't want to go too crazy. I just think that the kushio would allow for group participation, which I'm a fan. All right. Well, Rabbi Shantz is smarter than I am. So. Um, okay. But you should, you should start. So this Parshat Mishpatim and uh, yeah, Rabbi Shreya will take us through a little. All right. Wait. Mm-hmm. Did I do it? I did it. Um, wait, hold on before I do that. So two, um, two quick that, well, one by way of introduction, most of this Parsha um, is sort of the, the framework of the, you know, after the ecstasy, the laundry, right? We just had the big revelation at Sinai. Um, last week, and now a lot of this Parsha is, you know, getting into the nitty gritty, right? Getting into the sort of everyday details about now that this uh, big moment has happened, um, what does that actually look like in practice? Um, and so, you know, most of the Parsha is not narrative. It's it's more um, just straightforward rules and guidelines, right? Mishpatim, right? Statutes. Um, I will say it does contain one of my favorite scenes in all of Torah, and I was excited to talk about it. Uh, And then I went back on my notes, and I realized we talked about it last year. So we're not going to talk about that right now. It's also the Parsha where one of my favorite Hasidic texts is based out of, uh, but this is not a Hasidut Shior next year when Rabbi Schatz has convinced me to take this on by myself and I'm doing weekly Hasidut on the Parsha. We can do that. But for now, we're going to do neither of those things. What are we doing? So glad you asked. Okay. Um, we're just going to get right into it. And not only because, um, you know, it's the beginning of the chapter, but like I was just saying, much of, uh, the Parsha doesn't have a lot of narrative context, right? The narrative context is just, well, uh, here are some rules. So uh, with that giving of narrative context, well, uh, here are some rules. Um, so we're looking at the beginning of chapter 23 in Shmot, uh, And we're going to look at 
uh, verses one through three. Okay. Um, I'm going to try. I wonder who Rabbi Shots is talking to. I bet it's Susan. Hi, Susan. Not Susan. Oh, never mind. Not Susan. Um, I these verses. The, I don't like the translation. For the, I'm, I'm just going to read the translation, and I'll, I'll tell you guys why I don't like it better. Okay. Lo tisa shema shav. So it's translated here as you, you should not carry false rumors, um, but like don't carry like a false or a worthless listening, right? Like, like shav isn't false, right? Like it, it, there's, there's more to it than that. Al tashet yadecha imrasha. You should not join hands. You should not place your hands with with someone who is uh, who is bad, who is evil. It says here guilty. Lihiot ed Hamas to act as a malicious witness. And yes, malicious witnesses was a punk band in Seattle in the nineties. Lo tia achare rabim leraot. You should not be with the it's says it's translated here as mighty um but rabim is also like a multitude right so don't join with don't be with the multitude or the mighty uh to do wrong to do bad velo ta'ane al rov lin tot achare rabim lahatot and don't um give a I'll just read it as it's translated. You shall not give perverse testimony in a dispute so as to pervert it in favor of the mighty, right? So these two verses are sort of offering up like categories of people who you who you shouldn't be hanging out with, right? Don't hang out with the Rashaim. Don't side with the mighty. Um, don't side with... Um, you know, a group of people who are who are essentially more powerful um, to pervert a system of justice. And then verse three is like sort of an interesting like rejoinder to that almost within um, these these two verses. Vidal lo tedar berivel, translated here as "Nor shall you show deference to a poor man in his dispute." Um, and I was thinking about this in relationship to our conversation, I think it was two weeks ago, right? When we were starting to explore ideas of fairness and equity and, and sort of how do we um, within our system or hypothetically, at least, you know, create opportunities for people who, um, you know, might not have had opportunities or might be more in need. And I don't think this is, contradictory to that but i do think it's interesting to see when a system of judgment is being set up that there is a um a very structured way of of doing that in a way that is trying to be as impartial as as possible as you would presumably want um the one sort of half thought i'll give aligned with the yeah, hypothetical framework that we go with with this class um is when we think about these ideas, right, of, um, you know, when you're setting up a system of law, you don't legislate around something that people aren't doing, right? You don't need to set a speed limit 
unless people are going to go as fast on the highway as they want to go. And I said highway, which is how you know I'm not from Southern California, as Sarah often points out to me. Uh, if you right, if people didn't want to go as fast as possible on the freeway, you wouldn't even have a speed limit, right? So here too, you know, if if we weren't drawn to carry false rumors or to give this type of testimony or to show deference to the poor, right? We wouldn't have these have these rules. And so I think that in turn can open us up to us thinking about, um, you know, when are we drawn to these things? What's the, um, what's the pull, right? What's the pull of being dishonest or joining with a majority in a time when you really shouldn't or right, any of those things? I think, you know, it's not just legalese. It's not just for the sake of setting up a system of justice, though it, of course, is that. Um, but within that, there is the opportunity to reflect a little bit and say, OK, these these rules are in here for a reason. When might I be drawn into a position where I actually need um, the reminders that the Torah is offering up here? Period. Okay, so as mentioned, um, we'll take a few Kushiot, Rabbi Shapiro. Wow, it's hard to do it again. I don't know, Rabbi Kleefeld's name, I guess, is in my head. Rabbi Shapiro and I will listen very intently. I'm um, Rabbi Shapiro. Hello, it's not lovely to meet you. And um, and then we will, uh, Rabbi Shapiro will pick up with um, a commentary or two on, on the sources. So, Kushiot, any questions that you have on these three specific verses? I scared you all into not asking any questions. Yes, Mike. Unmute. I'm just wondering, you know, um, I mean, Mishpatim uh, supposedly, I mean, Mishpatim has all of these very specific um, laws and and seems, I I heard uh, something that Rabbi Sachs once said that, that uh, Jew, uh, let's see, uh, I wrote it down. Jew, uh, Jewish law is a sacred choreography of everyday life, or Judaism is about the poetry of the ordinary. So, are these things, and the way Ra- uh, Rabbi Shapiro just mentioned them, are they are they there because um, these are ways humans just act? I mean, and so therefore we have to. There, there needs to be some sort of frame, framework, very specific framework to say, no, you shouldn't do things this way. Great, great, great question. Uh, it's very hard for me to not respond. Denise. <laughs> so I feel like this is a little bit of a soapbox issue for me. Um, because I, I really believe that it's impossible to quantify pain <clears throat> from one person to another or from one group to another. I think we try to do it all the time, and I don't think it can be done. And um, just because there's so many variables that nothing can ever be reduced, you know, and there's so many variables and there's so many individuals and every individual has all those variables. So it's like just too much. Um And I just wonder if the Torah is speaking to that a little bit here, where it says, you know, don't show deference to the poor man. Like, don't reduce people down to one thing that you decide is significant. Mm -hmm. Just hear everybody who they are, where they are as individuals. Great. Great. Any other questions on these verses? 
Yeah, Miriam, go ahead. I think it's acknowledging that it's tempting to be imperfect. Mm. Great. Great. Thank you for that comment. Yeah. And lovely to piggyback Denise's. Okay. Rabbi Shapiro, go ahead. I feel like I picked bad verses. Nobody had any questions on these verses. Is it a Mishpatim thing? Maybe it's a Mishpatim thing. Or well, maybe also, Rabbi Shach, we maybe you, scared, we also you, scared them into not you, asking. Any you, you scared them. Yeah. You're a very, yes. you're a very scary person. I am. That's what I'm told. So everybody says the fact. Okay, go ahead. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to leave this up just for one more second because I, I was immediately kind of um, uh, quibbling a bit with the very first phrase and how it was translated um, and I, I read a really interesting sort of piece of, of rabbinic lore and legend that I thought offered an interesting angle on it. So lo tisa um, shema shav, right? Because you might um, uh, you, you might recognize that word shav from just last week in terms of the Ten Commandments, right? When um, we're told not to take God's name in vain, right? So like. Shema Shav is like something, something that you heard like for nothing, right? Like it's, it's a, it's a worthless thing that you heard. So you like, you shouldn't um, carry that. You sh- you shouldn't have that, have that experience of hearing something for nothing. And there was this basically um, sort of Agada, this legend that I read about um, Rav Zusia, um, who uh, he was he was studying in the Beit Midrash, as all rabbis do. Rabbi Schatz is actually in the Beit Midrash all day. She only comes out to her office um, for this class. We don't have um, a Beit Midrash. What? We don't have a Beit Midrash. Well, you're just saying that because you don't want people to disturb you in the Beit Midrash. Um, so uh, he was in the Beit Midrash studying, and a woman a woman came to him, and. Um, she said, I'm looking for my husband. He has left me. I'm an aguna, right? This construct, unfortunate construct, right? In, in rabbinic Judaism that she's like a chained woman because he hasn't given her a get, a writ of divorce. Um, I, you know, I, I don't know where my husband is. Have you seen him? And Rav Zusia, who'd been in the Beit Midrash all day, like all rabbis, like Rabbi Shatz are, um, he said, oh, he's in the hotel. And sure enough, she went and she found her husband in the hotel. And Rav Zuzia's students, who had been with him all day in Beit Midrash, because of course they're good students and they're with the rabbi all day in Beit Midrash, said to him, Rav Zuzia, how did you know, right? You, you got here almost like first thing in the morning. How did you know? How could you possibly know this guy was in the hotel? And he says, well, I was at the mikvah, because he went to the mikvah, of course. And when I was at the mikvah, I overheard these two other men talking, saying how there was a new guest in the hotel. And I knew, because I don't hear something for no reason, that the only reason I must have heard that was because later on that would prove to be an important piece of information. So as soon as this woman came and asked me, I knew I sort of had this free-floating piece of information in my head. It must be that that's where her husband would be. And sure enough, there he was. So I can't quite articulate why I like that story so much because it seems a bit frivolous. Um, what, what, I, what I think I like about it is this idea 
then and, and I guess it you know it's good as far as it goes um, that everything has significance right that anything that we hear anything that we see if we're really paying attention if we're really attuned to it can hold um, can hold meaning right so if if you're that deeply connected as Rav Zusia was he's living his life in such a way so as to make it that nothing is extraneous there's nothing extra, right? Even a passing comment that he heard that morning at the mikvah had some some deeper significance in terms of what it would hold as he went about his day. So much so that it really helped this woman um, who was deeply in need. So when when we're told, like, it's not just, I mean, you can, of course, we can read phrases any number of ways, um, that uh, you, sh- you shouldn't carry false rumors. Like, yes, don't carry false rumors, um, but make sure that when you hear something like it's, it's for, it's for a reason, right. That it has, that it has depth, that it has a deeper, um, something. To, I don't know. I don't know if Rabbi Shatz likes that story or not. Rabbi Shatz, do you like that story? Sure. I, I think, I, I think it's a, a fine, a fine story. It makes me think. You don't like, though, you don't like the, you don't like the story. No, I thought it was fine. I, I, the thing that I was thinking about in terms of these verses, though, is how do you know? Right? Like, how do you, how do you know that it's a false rumor? How do you know that you are, um, as it says in the English here, joining hands or really like placing your hands on, on that which is untrue or really Russia is evil, though it says guilty here. Um, you know, ha- like, it just made me think as you were telling the story that there's, there's so much that we do share. And if you trust a person, you assume that what you're sharing is true, but you might not actually know. And, and the information that they have might not be true and they might be telling it to you as if it's true because they have the same um, snowball effect where they heard it from someone that they thought was being honest to them. So it actually kind of, I, I was thinking about this based on what Denise and, and then Miriam kind of piggybacked on, um, which is we as humans just have, have this uh, attraction towards knowing information and sharing information. And I don't mean in like a gossipy, oh, this is so fun. I know more than you do type way, but really just in a way that if something is being shared, especially from someone that you trust and, and expect is, is only setting you up for success by that, which they're sharing, you know, how do you, how do you know if you're carrying a false rumor or not? That That's what I, and that might be a little bit too, like, uh, I don't know, that's theological, but like philosophical in, in the direction of this class for today. But that's what I, that's what I got out of this, that it seems quite obvious if you know truth versus lie um, or honesty versus dishonesty, but what if you don't know and you then are going about sharing things that aren't necessarily yours? Um, Yeah. Trust, but verify. Elon just said, yeah. Uh, Denise, go ahead. Okay. I'm not sure this is entirely a mental health comment. Um, not allowed. <laughs> I'm sure we could find a mental health aspect, but it, um, but I feel it so viscerally that at least for me, it's a mental health issue. So like when the Jesse Smollett thing happened a couple years ago, and I remember on the news, they were like going through the halls of Congress and like 
like Kamala Harris and Cory Booker that, oh my God, it's a lynching. And, it, and it, he wasn't a poor man, obviously, but he was gay and he was a person of color. And he was also a person that everyone felt they knew and liked because he's on TV. And like, we all like everyone that we see and we think we hang out with them every week on TV. And it was not true. And, you know, and then like, no one knew what to do with that. Saturday Night Live was hilarious. They, they said he was like convicted of being a bad actor or something. But like, you know, a lot of people were like, what do we do with it? It was a really like, it was kind of like a hard conversation that no one wanted to have because they all got sucked into um, whatever the passage is that I can't see right now of putting more weight on the, on the poor person of, you know, believing them more because they're poor or belighted, blighted in some way of color, gay, whatever, all of the above. And just because they fall into a category saying, Oh my God, we have to believe them and getting sucked into a scheme. And, and no one wanted to address, you know, the, except for SNL, no one wanted to address that. That's a really hard thing because People come at it from such a good place and it can be abused. So I think that Torah, what, it's, what the Torah is getting at here in terms of the deference to a poor person is that you wouldn't want to assume that because someone is poor um, or someone doesn't have the ability to potentially in this particular case, you know, go before a jury, then now all of a sudden they need to be seen as um, as helpless, right? Or that we need to have a lighter consequence to their actions. Um, right. but I think that's, that's what the Torah exactly, is. That's exactly what happened with Jesse Smollett. That okay, so in these categories, he was seen as must be believed and can't prosecute, and the prosecutor drops it, and all this stuff. So what? Right. So what I was so what I was about to say is that I don't think that that says that if a person is poor and you know that that's not that that's not the case, right, that you that you shouldn't do more. But I think what what the Torah is pointing out here is that if you are only seeing a part, right, if there if there is a very rich person walking down the street, and there's a very poor person walking down the street, and uh, the uh, this is it's really hard to come up with an example on uh, on the spot, but, and the poor person does something that you think is wrong and the, and the richer person or seemingly richer person um, seems to also have done something like trip a person or whatever that, that is wrong. That what the Torah is telling us to do is not assume that because the person is poor, they had no faculties to, to recognize that that was wrong. Right. What the Torah is telling us is take those two people for exactly who they are humans and recognize that if they both did the same action, that it does not matter one over the other, so to speak, in terms of their need for help. They, they need to be they need to be helped. So um, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna equate equate that with different um, with different situations that we've seen in the world because I think that you go down a very it becomes a very twisty, turny road to do that. And I just want to point, I want to point out to, to your point, Denise, that I think that it's, it is important to see that the, the person for who they are, not for whether it's what they look like, what religion they are, right? Our Torah does a very poor job of, um, of letting, letting Jews be persecuted and uh, not persecuted, punished, um, for the same things that non-Jews are punished for because we assume that that the Jews, you know, knew what to do or what was right. And that's, that's a hard narrative to, to know follows us. So anyway, I, now I'm going down my own twisty turny um, path here, but 
I just wanted to point out that that, and that's how I think the Torah is at least reading this particular passage. Um, Miriam, and then I think Elon had his hand up. To kind of piggyback on Denise again, it's like feeling sorry for somebody and so letting, for various reasons, so letting them get away with more because of that, instead of raising your expectations of them. That's something that can happen with the disabled or the poor kids, they don't know, or a person that's poor. When you really need to respect them to know what's right. Well, right is such a such a curvy, twisty word. Sure. But in other words, you don't lower your expectations for somebody just because on the surface they have weaknesses. Right. Um, right. And and then there was a second reaction that I had that it seemed in the first place that the rabbi was simply using deductive reasoning. It was out of the ordinary for him to be at the mikvah. So why was he there? That that I'll let Rabbi Shapiro respond to. <laughs> <laughs> well, or maybe there was something about his being at that mikvah. Something was out of the ordinary, and he used deductive reasoning to figure out that, hmm, maybe this matches up this other out-of-the-ordinary fact that this woman's husband was missing or had abandoned her. Yeah, sure. I mean, I think my understanding is that I, I think within the context of, of that narrative, it was a place that he was relatively frequently. But Marion, to your point, I, I agree that there there is an element of deductive reasoning there. But, you know, extrapolating that out um, and then I, I guess also bringing it in because context matters if it's possible to feed that into a construct of, you know, how, how a system of law would work, recognizing that, um, you know, data points are there for a reason and trying to see the whole picture, right? I think that's, that for me is what I see these verses talking about is not, um, not getting caught up in any one specific detail, but trying to see the whole picture as accurately as possible, right? Seeing that we might be compelled to go along with what the majority are doing, seeing that we might be prone um, to uh, siding with, you know, a group that seems to have more sway or influence and seeing as well that we might be um, more prone to extend generosity and judgment to someone um, who, from what we can tell, seems to be in need. And that in any of those cases, we're not really going by as close to what we can tell as um, the acu- actual data of the situation, but sort of the emotional or subjective pull of what we presume the situation to be, which of course is limited by our vantage point, right? Mm-hmm. Which is also then, you know, the value in having checks and balances in a system of law. And I, I would then also say having people who we trust for ourselves, who we can talk to that, like, if I'm going down a certain rabbit hole in terms of how I'm seeing a situation, I can turn to the people who I trust and I can say, Hey, hold on a second. Here's how I'm seeing things. Is this actually true? Right? Is this, am I seeing this, am I seeing this correctly? 
or am I maybe missing something here? Um, and that's really important. And that takes some humility, right? To acknowledge that it's, it's impossible, right? It's impossible for me um, to see the whole picture by myself um, and being willing to ask for help, I think is part of that too. Um, I said to Rabbi Schatz before we started the class, I was very excited to see uh, Freud quoted in the Eitzheim Kumash. Uh, I don't know how often that happens, but it happened today. So for all the Freudian, all the Freudians in the house, uh, say wayo. Um, but on that, no, Rabbi Schatz? They are great. Rabbi Schatz, not a Freudian. <laughs> Um, That's not why I was shaking my head. <laughs> well, I think it's also an accurate assessment of your general attitude towards early psychoanalytic thought. Okay. Okay. Um, on the third, Freudians in the house. Very good. Freudians in the house is actually what? What was the band name that I said earlier? I forget. Oh, the Malicious Witnesses. Yeah, Freudians in the house is the lead single from the Malicious Witnesses. Um. Denise, you distracted me with my own terrible running joke. Um, so on that uh, third verse, um, in terms of not showing deference to someone who's poor, um, the quote that the Yitzchayim Chumash offers up, um, well, they say that the rabbi, rabbis fear that um, if non-legal considerations are permitted to distort legal arguments, people will lose faith in the fairness of the courts. And then the poor will actually suffer more from that loss of faith, which is interesting. It's an, inter- it's an interesting sort of like, if then statement. And then the quote that that's shared from Freud, the first requirement to a civilization is justice. The assurance that a law once made will not be broken in favor of an individual, which is very interesting right thought to have. I'll read that out once more. The first requirement to a civilization is justice. The assurance that a law once made will not be broken in favor of an individual. I have lots of thoughts and responses to that, but I'm curious if other people do, including but not limited to Rabbi Shots. I'll put it in the chat so she can read it because I know she's a visual learner. I, you can put in the chat, but I actually did get it. But I'm curious to see, Paula had a reaction. So I'm curious to know if that's, if that's something she wants to share out loud. <laughs> I, I was just thinking about, um, you know, the abortion rights litigation and how we've lost a lot of, I have lost a, a huge amount of trust in the Supreme Court, you know, that six to three and is not, is I just don't like thinking of justice in terms of the political persuasions or someone, you know, moral, someone's religious persuasions intruding on their, their ostensible neutral or objective positions as a justice on the Supreme Court. We're overrepresented by Catholics. There are Catholics for free choice, but you have predominantly, um, really ex- very conservative, um, religious and conservative um, justices. And I think about not having trust in that system is really very painful for me as a, you know, democracy, someone who values democracy with a small D, the, the systems of governance 
that it makes me not trust them. That was one thought. And then the guy who brought the affirmative action case that the Supreme Court is taking up challenging um, undergraduate admissions at Harvard and University of North Carolina is a Jewish guy who um, has a like a political bent and he his lawsuit changed preclearance for voting rights. Like our whole voting rights system is upended because of this one guy got to be in his bonnet and persuaded people to come along with this this these positions that to me are not just and they're not just in terms of the long term health of our of our society of our country of democracy because it 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 seems to favor uh wealth and power over those without wealth and power going back to the first verse yeah 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 thank you for sharing all of that uh Elon looks like he has a response or comment yeah, I'll only to uh, comment on what Paul said, just to represent yeah. the other side. First of all, uh, the Catholics are overrepresented on the Supreme Court, as are Jews. We are two and a half percent of the country and one third of the Supreme Court. So I'm not so sure that I'd rush to, um, say, you know, I'm, I wouldn't judge the Supreme Court based on the religious diversity. I think that's an unfair standard. I'm, I'm delighted that there are three Jewish justices. And if there were five, that would be great. If there were one, that would be great. I don't think that's an issue one way or the other. This, the second one is on, uh, I think it's, uh, there are many decisions that the Supreme Court comes to. Uh, abortion would be one of them. I happen to be pro-life. Having said that, I'm sorry, not pro-life, pro-choice. Having said that, if the Supreme Court comes to a different decision based on their interpretation of the law, I don't necessarily think that the system is unfair. The system is what it is, and uh, elections have consequences. And if we want to change the nature of the Supreme Court, we should make sure we elect Democratic presidents, right? So I, I don't, I don't, I think it's unfair to say justice is only justice if the outcome is what we want it to be. It can be a just system, even if the outcome is different than we would prefer it to be. No, Robert, this was your thing. I can comment, but this was your. This was I, your see, I see. I see Tybal's name at that. Um, Just a comment from uh, Maryland, where Justice Breyer, for I don't know how long, probably longer than I've lived here, his once a year attendance in shul is Kol Nidre, and he speaks. And I just wanted to say, sometimes labeling people by ethnicity, even if it's correct, doesn't really capture the sensibility, because my personal take on having heard, heard him many times is he's more identified with his daughter, the Anglican priest, than he is with his own Jewish identity and why he came was to honor parents, which is great. But I'm just saying not that Anglicans might not be just as liberal, but I'm just saying I think part of the whole slot slots we need so many of xyz it it doesn't always work because human affairs and identity is so much more complicated i I mean i i don't know that i have anything much to add on any of these specific topics from like the perspective of someone 
sort of trying to guide the conversation of the class. I have opinions about this stuff from a current events perspective, but that's not my area of expertise, right? So I don't quite know what perspective to respond from here. Uh, I'm learning a few things. One is that um, we, we could probably have a Judaism and uh, justice uh set of classes that people would have a lot of things to say about. So uh, Rabbi Schatz can plan that series because she loves to plan series series is. Um, I agree with Elon's comment that we can't just um, judge systems by whether or not we get the outcome that we want. I resonate with Paula's comment that it seems like there are ways in which the system is tilted towards a certain direction that I to find to be frustrating. And Tybal, I think your comment is poignant um, that any one identifier of who, of who a person is doesn't necessarily indicate right their, their overall nature, right? I think that goes back to the verses themselves in terms of trying um, to get a clear sense of who a person is by more than just one identifying trait or one identifying uh, demographic um, element of who that person is. Um, the thing that came to my, I'm, I'm going to, while recognizing that I've zero agency here, uh, lightly encourage us to, to see if we can reflect on these verses, not just, not only, not just, uh, not only from the perspective of like the current state of the legal system in America in 2022, but also how we as humans respond to questions of um, fairness and um, when we find ourselves drawn to or able to successfully move away from getting carried up in um, things that we find to be unfair um, for ourselves, right, and how we do that. Um, And the other thing that I want to offer up, um, I even though I was uh, excited to see Freud quoted in the time, as I said, I also don't love it. <laughs> I, don't, I don't love that quote because even though I think it's important, I think um, if, if you think about the sphere out, as I know Rabbi Schatz always does, um, right, the sort of Kabbalistic structure where we think about the different attributes of God, um, Dean is on one side, right? Justice, like sort of strict justice. And then the other side is chesed, which is loving kindness, right? That in, and in order to have balance in the world, there has to be both, right? There has to be both the strict container of justice. These are the laws. These are the structures. These are the absolutes in terms of how things have to be. And in order for the world to stand, there also has to be chesed. There also has to be loving kindness. There also has to be a sense of um, embrace uh, sort of in a, in a more, in, in a softer kind of way. It's, I don't quite know how else to say that. Um, and the, Freudy, the Freud quote points very much in one of those directions. Um, and for me, I wonder about sort of the, the dance and the balance, balancing act between those poles. Or maybe a legal system isn't the place where that lives, right? And then that's something internally for us to reflect on in terms of the balance of um, strict judgment and loving kindness. Ilan. I mean, what struck me about the verses is that it's, I, I didn't read it solely having to do with uh, the poor person and the rich person, but more broadly, which is 
to the extent that we are coming to conclusions about any situation, we should do the best we can to leave our prejudices um, behind and to look at the situation as the situation is while understanding. I mean, I think the Torah acknowledges uh, even by pointing this out, that we are going to have those prejudices, that we are going to have those preconceived notions. Having said that, we should do the best we can to uh, to put those aside and judge every situation for its specific merits uh, as it presents itself. It's interesting that you bring that up because I think that um, the the Parsha is, though though not referencing him at all, this very clearly connects to what Yitro expects of Moshe, right? Yitro basically says to Moshe, you can't be the only guy with the only opinions that everybody is coming to, or else you're not seeing everybody for all that they are, because you are only who you are. And, you know, that this was way before Democrats and Republicans, but this is, this is a person for whom just because you're human, you have your own thoughts that someone who is your chavruta or to go back to Genesis language, right? Your Ezer Konegdo, a person who pushes you in different ways that, that, that that would be something that you actually need in leadership or in this case, injustice, because you need to make sure that there is there not necessarily the opposite, but that there is conversation and listening and understanding such that you aren't just doing everything in a vacuum or with blinders on. And I think that the the way in which the this piece of Torah is talking about justice, and I hadn't thought about this until until you just spoke, Elon, really without even mentioning Nitro, goes back to something that he tried to put in place for our people to even just hear the Ten Commandments. Right. That that even just things that, as our rabbis point out, are as simple, we would have done them without even knowing them. Right. As as simple as they are, we needed to hear them. And yet we all need to hear them in our own way, because we can't hear them as somebody else. We hear them with our own prejudices and we hear them with our own experiences and we hear them with our own um, with our own knowledge and, and understandings and, and things that we, that we don't like, you know, we are also unique to us. So that's not to say that there are other people who don't share in some of those things, but no two people are exactly the same in all of that. So I think that that it is an interesting um, an interesting connection to that, which we've we've already seen in how leadership was put out for our people just just a parsha ago. Uh, Mike, I really like that Rabbi Schatz, and because I'm I'm just uh, I have, I'm looking at the uh, stone uh, homage, and to, for the first thing, it has a it says. You're forbidden. It's forbidden to to believe unverified gossip about another person. This applies to an individual. Uh, evil talk to a judge. And this goes back to what you said about Yitro. Uh, and Moses was acting like a, you know, judging everything. Yeah. Uh, who is forbidden to listen to a dispute unless a second party is also present. That's Rashi. Right. Right. Yeah, and it's the same with tshuva, actually. When you do tshuva, um, if you do it privately, you have to do it a certain number of times. And if you do it publicly, it has to be in front of other, I think it's two other people, like a bait dean. Um, but that's how we do a lot of things in Judaism, right? We we only convert someone once they're able to be in front of three Jews, because 
three Jews, seven opinions, right? And and that's not just a joke. That's also a way of of listening and showing um, respect to all different kinds of opinions. Uh, same with a wedding, right? You have two aiding, you have two witnesses, and they can't be they can't be related to each other or to the bride or groom because you want to make sure that on that ketubah, there are people for whom they're not going to be biased towards you for whatever reason, but are still going to be to be there to uphold you and your relationship. So there, there are many places in our, I mean, think of a minion. We don't say Kaddish without there being people around you to support you. So I think we do this in a lot of different ways in Judaism. And it seems to be that the way in which even here that we're talking about not showing deference to someone who you might even think needs that um, is again showing this um, this human need to to judge whether favorably or not someone in front of you and to stop for a second and think oh, wait let me have all of the facts let me know everything about this before I pass pass any kind of judgment uh, Karen. I don't know how we have nothing when we're interacting. So anybody watch Bull, the show Bull, it's a jury, it's a jury consult. And oh. so during the Wadir, he listens to the responses that of the questions that, so he wants to have to be more open to the case that he's involved with. Mm. You know, you know what I'm saying? Uh, people want to win in a case. So you want people favored to you. I don't know how we get rid of mm-hmm. actions and judgments are things. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's what I think we're talking about. What is the action that we take that has to be biased, despite what we may say right now? a really great point. I definitely don't have an answer. Um, no I think answer needed. No answer needed. <laughs> it's a really beautiful point. And I think that's part of the reason why we look for partnership. Um, because hey, one one other thing, yeah, you're signing a ketubah. Yeah. Right? yeah, I could pick somebody off the street, right? Um, depends on who you ask. Yeah, but but you know what I'm saying it, it yeah. isn't anybody that knows. Well, that's a very different thing. No impact on me. I'll sign yeah. my name if I, you know, not I mean to anything legal and so on and so forth. Right, so right. That's a very interesting too. I don't have a, an opinion about that. Great. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I um without going into like the halacha of, of uh, Adim, the there are many different things we use witnesses for in our Jewish lives and the parameters for witnesses are different depending on the situation, right? So a wedding witness is very different than a, a conversion witness is very different than a get witness. Um, so, so yes, like the, the different ways that we use witnesses and, and we use testimony and we use jury, so to speak, you know, it is very different across Judaism. Um, what I was going to say before, before you made that statement is I think, though I have no answer because I, I believe that we're all trying to figure those kinds of things out for ourselves and the ways that we act in the world uh, and deal with our own biases and judgments. Um, I think that's part of the reason why we find Chavruta. And that part, part of the reason, whether that's, you know, like a, a partner who you share a life with or that's someone who you work with or that's people in a community that you can have conversations with. Right. I don't think it needs to look like a certain a certain model, but that's the reason we surround ourselves. It's part of the reason why um, to go back to something we've done here at Beth Allen, like it's part of the reason that we did resetting the table to be able to have conversations across across boundary lines, so to speak, in order to hear other people and make sure that we're not just making our own 
decisions in a, in our own bodies, but also we're listening to people who we respect. Yeah, Karen. So I teach a course at Northridge. Yeah. Online. And I give assignments and I want people to put themselves in the response. Don't just quote to me the article is saying, but what impact does that have? Yep. On you? Now I have to judge those. And are they grammatically correct? Now, who knows grammar? I mean, who, where, nobody's teaching that anymore, I don't think. But anyway, the, you know, the point is there are times that we are judging all over the place. A baked dean has to know those are judgments. Do you know enough? Do you have the right attitude? Those are all judgments. Yeah. I don't, I, we could I, go I, on and on and on and on and on and on. I, I don't think the point here is don't use judgment. I agree. Right. I, and I think, I think there's a difference between being judgmental and utilizing judgment. Yes. I and agree. I think, and I think what these verses are pointing to is finding a way to effectively use our judgment. Right. I, I, I yes. think that's the dance being um, illuminated in these verses, right. On the one hand, Use judgment, right? Don't get caught up with people who are making bad choices. Don't get caught up with the guilty, right? Like use your sechel, right? Like, like yes. if don't stay away from the folks who are making bad choices, use your judgment and don't be judgmental to only see part of a person, right? right? I think, I think from my perspective, that's what these verses are holding out is recognizing that we can get pulled towards both, Right we can get pulled towards just sort of getting caught up in the moment and not exercising proper judgment. And we can get sort of pulled in a different direction to be like, Oh, I see this one piece of information and that's going to what be what sort of drives my, my decision-making and only that. So, you know, I, I resonate with what Rabbi Schatz is saying in terms of yes, interact with other people, talk to them, recognize the, the limitations are point of view, but I, I, but I don't, I don't think this is saying, you know, don't utilize. I think this is saying right. here, here, here are ways in which we can go astray from using our judgment. And, and these verses are maybe trying to funnel us, you know, back, back towards that. I think how I see it. Uh, Tybal and Miriam. Um, I think it was something that Karen said that I've been thinking for a while and it reminded me of, I've been studying Talmud at different, place, different places and one weekly since 1990 with a traditional Orthodox, traditional Orthodox, not modern, who is also, um, was a law, is a lawyer. And the thing that he always says, which just made me think of is that one of the biggest differences between a Judaic system court system and what's happened with our Western court system, and maybe this is about witnesses, but in a Judaic system, your witnesses have to be different tests, as you said, Rabbi Schatz, but but of a certain moral character. And he talks about what's happened in the Western courts, or maybe not Western, just American, where some of the people that wind up testifying are themselves criminals who have made deals. And in a Jewish, a Judaic jurisprudence system, you couldn't ever hear. Number one, testimony is more important than anything written. But 
you could never hear someone like that because their moral character wasn't such. On the other hand, then it limits your witness. So I was just thinking about even though we think of it as systems of justice, but it's not really about justice. It's about how different causes of action are represented within a system. And at least for me, I mean, I'm getting very personal. I was hurt at work in Maryland in 1988. I've been more caught up with the legal system. And for me, I don't think of it as about justice at all. It's just about game playing who has the money and maybe it's different in civil certain kinds of civil, but at least for me, workers comp with big corporations hearing about differences in criminal from this rabbi who's also a lawyer. I can't speak for everywhere, can't speak for whatever, but a lot of it is, that's what it's really about. And then it makes me think of, was it, is it the Winston Churchill quotation about, you know, democracy, something about democracy not being a great kind of government, except it's better than all the other ones. Anyway. Sorry, I'm, I, I am not sure. I, I believe you that it is him, but I am not. I cannot speak to it being accurately him. Elon, it, it, it's definitely him. Yeah, it's definitely him. OK, I knew that all on yeah. my own. Um, OK, Denise, I mean, um, Miriam, I just assume the two of you go together um, and then we'll and then we'll wrap it up and we'll bring both of those comments together. Thank you, Tybo. Well, a couple of things. I think that. Judgment isn't the whole story. Um, people have, people are affected by different things and in, in their perceptions. Um, there's the famous set of novels, Four Quartets, that's about the different perspectives on what happened. So how do we get the whole story? We kind of have to put ourselves there, but we also have to step outside. So I guess I ask more questions and no, that's great. Comments. I mean, it's, <laughs> that's great. It actually kind of goes back to the first question that I asked, which is like, how how do we know? Right? How do we know what is actually truth? How do we know what we're taking from, as you said, like the inside to the outside? How do we know that which we are um, uh, continuing on is is what we're supposed to be sharing or saying or, or doing? I mean, we all have different perspectives of right, the, exactly. the truth. The deaf's going to see it from a different perspective. I mean, right, right. there's so many factors affecting our perceptions. Totally, totally. Um, with one minute left, I'm going to let Rabbi Shapiro put put our our uh, our lovely bow on this class, and maybe he can even bring it back to his original prompt at the beginning. But that'll be a Herculean. A Herculean task, so we'll see what he can do. <laughs> he might have just left. Are you still there? Okay, go ahead. Yes, I'm glad Miriam likes it, finds you funny. Okay, go ahead, Rabbi Shapiro. Miriam wasn't here last week, so it's a new I know, joke. That's why it's, an, it's a oh. new joke for her. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But I'm still entertained by it. <laughs> we were all over the place today, and I'm not going to be able to, to tie everything together. Um, I think I'll push back on some of what's been said. I think I think we are being overly self-effacing when we say we just we can't know anything. I think the Torah is telling us we actually can know. There, it's saying don't affiliate with people who are Rashaim. 
don't throw your hand in with those who are malicious or evil. And it's not giving us qualifiers for that. I mean, part of it is the Torah speaks in, you know, more apodictic language in terms of just dictating saying this is the way it is. But I think we know. I think we know when we're making bad choices. And I think we know when we're going along with people that we really shouldn't. And I think we are diminishing our own judgment and absolving ourselves of responsibility if we just say, well, who's to say? I think we do know. I think it can be tempting to go along with the majority, like the Torah is telling us. I think it can be tempting to um, see people just according to one or two pieces of their demographic categories rather than the totality of who they are. And I think, again, the Torah is calling to us to use proper judgment and to recognize the challenge of not just doing that for ourselves, but setting up structures that are in place to bring those to bear. But at the end of the day, systems are just people making choices, right? There there is no such thing as a system that is um, totally objective because the people who consist of that system are making individual choices that dictate the ways in which that system is unfolding. Um, and from my perspective, the Torah is reminding us of that right. because okay. all of okay because all of that is in the singular. Hello. Right. It's not saying here are the things that y'all should do. It's here are the things that you, as an individual, should do because each one of us has an obligation to do those things, and each one of us is prone to deviating to the right or to the left. Um, so I don't know if that's a bow, but, but I think what, what I'm trying to sort of move out of this with is the challenge of a recognizing any, any system, any system, um, is going to have its challenges in terms of just figuring out what's fair and what's just, um, each one of us is confronted with questions of how we stay in touch with what, what we know to be fair and just, and then how we, how we live that out. And those are real challenges. And I think we know those are real challenges because, well, we all had a lot to say about that today. So hopefully this um, pointed us in one direction or another closer to where we need to get to go um, moving forward. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.